Thanks, Art. Hi, everyone. It's uh, great to be together again. And uh, man, we had such a wonderful day out on the lake today, paddling and exploring. And humor really has been a, a gift to us. We are still just discovering the many facets of this, of this gift. But um, one of the things that's been a real gift is that we've just come off the back of a couple of weeks vacation and uh, dive full stream back into sort of the fall launch, um, like most churches and schools and businesses have. And uh, just being here, being able to reemerge, teaching once a day, but chilling with the family has been an amazing gift. So uh, we feel refreshed. And I, I want to talk this morning, this evening, uh, about um, what is probably my most encouraging to me anyway, I hope it's going to be to you, aspect of Jesus being better than. We've talked about Jesus being better than the prophets, better than angels. Last night, Jesus better than Moses. And remember, we, we talked last night that one of the reasons why he was better than Moses, even though Moses was this honored servant in God's house, was that Jesus is able to not just bring us out of slavery to sin, out from under the wrath of God, but Jesus is able to bring us in. And that's a, that's a great theme of, of Hebrews, that there's this inheritance for the people of God as they persevere through faith and patience, we inherit what is promised. And uh, Hebrews 3 and 4 goes on to, to unpack what that, what that promised inheritance is. Uh, and let's just do a quick, quick little recap about some of the aspects of what Jesus brings us into. We know that He brings us out through His death on the cross, uh, through the, the, the blood of the Lamb. He brings us out from slavery to sin. He brings us out from under the wrath of God. He makes us friends with God. But what does He bring us into? What's part of that inheritance that is worth fighting for by faith? Shout it out. No books, no free books for right answers, but let's... Uh, fellowship with the family of God. Absolutely. Fellowship with the... Family of God, yes. His rest. His rest. Sorry? With God Himself, absolutely. His rest, yeah? Restoration, yeah? How about heaven? Part of what He's brought us into is our heavenly calling. Fantastic. Anything else? Kingdom purposes, right. Uh, the amazing thing is... Psalm 2 says that our inheritance is the nations. Uh, when Jesus gave us a great commission, He said, you'll be my witnesses in all nations. You'll make disciples in all nations. That's part of our, our inheritance. We spent some time uh, this evening with uh, Jason and, and Tiffany, and they were just talking about Hume's international partnerships around the world. And it's just such an amazing thing that God gives us this large... We, we, we are children of Abraham... As many as the stars in the sky, uh, God gives us an inheritance in the nation. So these are some of the aspects that God brings us into. But the writer of the Hebrews, he, he encapsulates it with this word, and one of the ladies brought it, rest. He brings us into a promised rest, which was not just a day, but it's a state of being as we rest in Christ's finished work. And so Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about a striving to enter that rest, which is quite an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, to strive to enter that, that rest. And there's that warning that we heard 
last night that actually we can be robbed of this promised rest, which is more than just heaven. We can be robbed of this promised rest if we allow suffering and disappointment and just the trials of life to cause our hearts to harden. And so it's a warning for us to, to keep our hearts soft, to keep our ears open. Hebrews, in many ways, is preaching to the choir. It's saying, actually, you've heard these things before, but don't allow them just to become, oh, I've heard that before. You're preaching to the choir. Actually, the choir needs preaching to, because the choir can lose the wonder of the gospel. And so if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around faith for a while, Hebrews is for you, because there's always more. We've discovered some wonderful stuff about the gospel, but there's always more. There's always more of God's promised rest as we come into. And so in Hebrews 4.11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's saying as we come before God's Word, isn't God's Word amazing? Inspired by the Spirit, God's breath on a page. And it's saying don't allow yourself to become familiar with God's Word. God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces if we will keep our hearts open by, by faith. God's Word brings us into God's promised rest. And that's a preamble to the three verses I want to zero in on tonight, which is from Hebrews 4, verse 14. And it's saying, man, be careful that you don't miss God's promised rest, but this is your assurance that you will enter into God's promised rest. And it's this, the big idea, that Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better high priest as I've dug into this, as I've allowed the truth of this to sink deeper into my heart and my mind, this reality, I think, has transformed me more than almost any other in terms of who Jesus is. That Jesus is a better high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In my first year of pastoring a church, a Greek Orthodox family joined our church. And I remember my first uh, conversation with them. The son was about 10 years old. And, you know, our, our, our church is kind of contemporary, casual. And I think he was a little confused about who I was. I was young at that time. I was uh, in my early 30s, and he just said, are you the priest here? Because you don't look much like a priest. I said, well, I, I, I'm a pastor here. I'm not the priest. And he said, oh, okay. And then his father said this, hey, man, won't you throw up a couple of prayers to the big guy upstairs? Because I know he hears you. And it, it was kind of in that moment that I was like, oh, 
I've got to help people to understand the difference between a pastor and a priest. And that's with due honor to many sectors of the church that still call their pastors priests. And there are excellent, excellent churches that do that. But these Christians in the book of Hebrews had forgotten something of the wonder of Jesus being their better high priest. And they were looking for things in human priests that actually they couldn't find. And so we're going to ask, what is the difference between a pastor, because certainly God calls shepherds to, to help us, and what are we to find from them versus what are we to find from Jesus? And how is that better than any human leader? I often say to our congregation, I can preach to you, I can pray for you, but I don't have a hotline to God. It's not like He hears me more than He hears you. I just want to stop and, and ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that God hears you as much as He hears any ordained leader in the church? I can counsel you. I can't cleanse you of your sin. I can sympathize you with you, but I don't have unlimited energy to sympathize. I can give you some wise ways to stay out of temptation, but I can't be with you at 3 a.m. in the morning when you are tempted. I am not your high priest. And I think that that's probably helped our congregation to not have an overdeveloped expectation of what I would be or anyone else. And I think very often when we don't realize this beautiful truth that Jesus is our high priest, we put unrealistic expectations on human leaders, men and women. And, and, and that might be a pastor, it might be your life group leader, it might be your counselor, it might be your best friend, it might be your husband, your wife. They are not your priest. Jesus is your priest. They are something, but they can't be your priest. And so we're just going to dig into what does it mean to treasure and trust in Jesus as our Great high priest. What does that mean? And there's really two big aspects, and then there's a call to action. The first is Jesus is a great high priest, one, because he has heavenly status, yet he maintains human sympathy. He has heavenly status, he's in heaven, but he maintains human Sympathy. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Remember in the opening night, we talked through uh, chapter 1, verse 3, where, that says, Jesus, after making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a little fun fact about human priests in these days. Because human priests were, were, were known particularly to be mediators between God and people. And they were to be mediators in teaching the law, uh, in counseling, in judgment. But particularly they were to be mediators in making sacrifices 
so that sin could be atoned for. So they would first do sacrifices for themselves so that on the Day of Atonement they could enter into the Holy of Holies and not be killed. And there they would make sacrifices to atone for the sins of all the people. Fun fact, in the tabernacle and the temple, there are no chairs. There were no chairs. Why? Because a priest's work was never done. Hebrews says day after day, they had to make sacrifices with the blood of goats, rams, or lambs. Their work was never done. But Jesus, the great high priest, why is he a better, better high priest? It says, because after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't this beautiful? There is a chair in heaven. There are no chairs in the temple, but there is a chair in heaven. Why? Because Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all and sat down. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel is amazing. There's no longer any need for any sacrifice to be made year after year after year that cannot cleanse the conscience. But Jesus makes purification that goes to the very bottom, the guttermost of our heart, and he sits down. And that's where our rest comes from. We no longer are needing to go, oh, I mean, of course we can live a life, we should live a life of repentance. But there's no longer the sense of like, oh my gosh, I've, I've got to make another sacrifice. I've got to do some good works or give some money in order to be accepted. No, once and for all, he has made a purifying sacrifice and he has sat down. Isn't it wonderful that there's a chair in heaven? Jesus is no longer making sacrifices for us. But I want to ask this. What is he doing if he's finished his work on the cross? What is this high priest doing? Is he just chilling out with his dad? What is he actually doing? Well, Hebrews says that Jesus, having finished his saving work on the cross, is now continuing his priestly work in heaven. He's passed through the heavens. Hebrews 7 says, he ever lives to intercede for those that are his. I think the church is like a beggar on a beach of gold because it knows what Jesus did on the cross, mostly, but it doesn't have a clue what Jesus is doing now. I want to ask you, do you think, do you spend any time thinking about what Jesus is doing right now? Hebrews 7 says, He ever lives to intercede for you as a priest. Just let that sit there. That means even when you forget to have a quiet time, your alarm doesn't go off, Jesus is praying. It means when you do pray, you're not inviting Jesus into your prayer. You are joining His prayer. You're saying, Lord Jesus, you ever live to intercede. I mean, He doesn't, I mean, that's His day job. Doesn't seem like He ever knocks off. He ever lives to intercede. There's a beautiful book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And he says, well, what is he primarily praying? Having passed through the heavens, sat down, finished his saving work, what is he praying? Primarily he's praying this, that his people would live fully in what he did on the cross for them. He's praying for that justifying work to become a full orbed reality in our life. 
He's saying, Father, it was your will that I die for them. Now, please, Lord, help them to know just how forgiven they are. Help them to know just how adopted they are. Help them to know just how loved and deeply held they are. Help them to know that how much you are for them, Father, and not against them. He is praying that his earthly work might become a reality to us. That's what he's doing in heaven. I think that's amazing. (laughs) And that's such an encouragement to me. I know I'm belaboring the point. Because it means that my prayer, it's actually helped my prayer life because I'm no longer praying in the hopes that Jesus will hear. I'm praying with confidence that he's already praying for me. So in essence, I'm saying, well, Lord, what are you praying? And let me get behind that rather than asking you to join my little prayer meeting. He ever lives to intercede for us. So he is in heaven, but his geographical distance from us does not mean there's any distance in his heart. And I think that's amazing. If I was in heaven, I think, in that place with no tears and no sin and no darkness, I would just want to go, Let me just chill out. I mean, life down there wasn't very pleasant. Let me just enjoy this. But actually, it says, we do not have a high priest, having passed through the heavens, who is unable to sympathize with us. In other words, there is this witness in the heart of Jesus, even though he is in heaven, geographically separated, but in his heart with us. There's a beautiful solidarity with his people. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan writer, he wrote a book called The Heart of Christ. And and his burden was to convince disheartened believers that even though Christ is in heaven, he is just as open and tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he was on earth. Think about that. The Jesus that reached out to people who were lepers and ill and oppressed by demons and ostracized by culture, there is no change in his heart. If you bumped into Jesus, he would have exactly the same heart, that unrestrained witness. And so Goodwin said this, imagine if a friend took your hands and placed them on the beating heart of Christ for you so that you knew what his heart was like. And Goodwin says, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, is that friend. It tells us what the beating heart of Christ is for you right now. He's in heaven, but he has great sympathy. He sympathizes with our weakness. In other words, when he represents us in prayer before the Father, he's, he's not looking down, patronizing us, saying, oh, those poor, miserable mortals those feeble, tempted sinners. No, he has solidarity with us. How do we know that? Well, we know it because the Bible tells us, but we also know it because Jesus chose to keep his nail scars. Isn't that amazing? In Jesus' resurrected body, glorified body, he still had scars. Thomas, put your hand into my scars. And he carried that body that human body, that glorified body into heaven. 
I think one of the mistakes we make as Christians is that we think Jesus, when he left earth, left his humanity there. Fully God, fully man, still with nail scars. John, in Revelation, says, I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain, seated on the throne. Jesus keeps the scars. Why? Because it reminds him of humanity and fragility. Helps him to pray with sympathy. Isn't that amazing news? And you know, Jesus could not sympathize with you or I unless he had experienced weakness himself. Hebrews 5 says that he was clothed with weakness, fully God, yet actually clothed with with weakness. Let me give you some examples. I mean, Jesus would have got pimples. We know that he got tired and needed an afternoon nap in a boat. He wasn't Superman. He was fully God, but he wasn't Zeus. Zeus. How do you say it? Zeus? Zeus. He got hungry. He had below average physical features. He wouldn't have been on the cover of Men's Health magazine. Isaiah 53 says about the Messiah that he was actually one from whom men turned their faces. It was average looking. Isaiah 53 says he has no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. In other words, he came as a normal man to normal people. He knew what it was to be rejected and to be betrayed. He knew what it was to be exasperated and frustrated with his disciples. He understood loneliness. He grew up in a blended family. He was falsely accused, shamed, tortured, abandoned by his friends, forsaken by his father. He was killed. Just think about that. God allowed himself to be killed by his creation. Weakness. It's remarkable. Though he was fully God, he lived with human limitations on his energy, his knowledge, his emotions. Think about Jesus. It says in Luke 3, he grew in stature and favor with God as he learned from his parents. Imagine Jesus having to learn languages and family rules from people he created. Imagine Jesus learning a carpenter's trade with trees he'd created. It's remarkable how he experienced weakness. He often had to withdraw to recharge. Didn't just have like a Tesla battery that just went on and on and on. Had to withdraw and recharge in prayer. He was reliant on reading the Word and the Holy Spirit for strength. So Hebrews' exhortation to hold fast your confession that Jesus certainly is Savior and Lord, but that He is a high priest. It's vital that we don't allow our own weakness and our temptation and the trials and sufferings of life to cause us to feel, well, Jesus, you're just in heaven, you're aloof, you can't understand or identify with what I'm 
going through absolutely he can and he does. And he lives to intercede for us as a sympathetic high priest. That's the first big idea. What do you think about that? Something encouraging to think about. What is Jesus doing now? He's praying as a sympathetic high priest. Second big idea, and there's only two. You doing all right? That he has been tempted in every respect, yet without sin. So the first is, he has this heavenly status, but, but there's this withness with us. His heart is with us. Sympathizes with us. What, what You just think about your greatest sense of weakness right now. It might be a physical weakness. It might be an emotional weakness. It might be a mental weakness. It might be a relational weakness. Jesus sympathizes with you in that. But then verse 15, and this is scandalous. You do not have a high priest that is unsympathetic, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're just going to drill down on that for about 10 minutes. Stay with me. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. So that would say to us that temptation is not the same as sin. So Jesus was sinless. He lived a sin sinless life life that we could not live, so that his death on the cross was not because he was guilty. It was a substitutionary death in our place, the death that we should have died. But he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. What's the difference between temptation and sin? How is this wonderful news that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin? We're going to drill down. You ready? Tell me you're ready. <laughs> okay. So temptation happens when we are enticed to wrongdoing. There's a line that we cross when we cross over from temptation into sin. But before we cross over, we are enticed towards it. We are drawn to it. There's a magnetic, and each of us have our own kryptonite. We have our own weakness, our own sense of temptation. And the Bible says that God doesn't tempt us. We are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires. Jesus did not have a sinful nature, but he was able in his weakness to be tempted. And that is amazing news. And we know there's, there's, a, there's a, a time before we actually act out in sin that we actually welcome temptation into our heart and then act it out. I want to be careful here because particularly uh, sexual temptation is just rife in our culture and none of us are immune to it. And I certainly am not immune to it. But, but I've, I've often said that as I've come to know my weaknesses, I would tend to backslide to a bakery before I backslide to a brothel. I'm not saying I'm immune to sexual temptation. I'm not. But actually, in terms of food, I mean, seriously, I go to gym 
uh, in, in Breuer. And each time I, I, I come out of gym and get into the car, over there is a sex shop, and over there is a French bakery. And I want to tell you, my head goes there. It just does. And I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying that's, that's the thing. Doesn't mean I'm never sexually tempted. No, it doesn't. But I'm just saying that's the thing. And I've known, I mean, I love coffee too. And so when I go into a coffee shop, there's almost always good baked goods there, right? And so I'll go, okay, just get the, get the coffee. Get the espresso. Get it with almond milk. And, and you know, just keep your eyes, eyes straight. If I'm not in a great place, I'll say to the barista, hmm, that croissant, that looks good. How is that croissant? Or as the French say, croissant. And have you ever had a barista that's ever said, no, that croissant is really bad? <laughs> no. They will all say, oh, sir, it's fantastic. I know at that point, when I ask the barista, I've actually crossed a line. I'm going to buy that croissant. Now, I'm not saying buying a croissant is sin. But actually, for me, sometimes it is. It's actually a temptation. I don't need that. And so I'll go in, and I'll just, oh, wow, the croissant. I cross a line where I, when I ask the barista, hey, how about the croissant? You know, in terms of your weakness and your temptation, where you actually cross the line, where you actually welcome that temptation in. The beautiful thing is that Jesus never, ever crossed that line. There was enticing, but he never crossed the line. He never welcomed that thing into his heart. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. And we know he was tempted. I mean, think about that moment where Peter tries to tempt Jesus to not go to the cross. Oh, you'll never go to the cross. And Jesus, I mean, this friend just says, get behind me, Satan. You are becoming a stumbling block to me. In other words, that was actually tempting to Jesus in that moment. To save the world, but not with a, not with a cross. And what Peter wanted was that, you know, Peter was the bodyguard. Peter wanted Jesus to come and take Rome by military force. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not going to take the world in that way. I'm going to take it through a cross. Get behind me, Satan. He was tempted in that way. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted. Oh, Lord, if it's, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He was wrestling, wrestling so much that he began to sweat drops of blood. Oh, if it's possible, God. And then he resolved it, but, but Lord, with not my will, but yours be done. It's so beautiful. He overcame temptation in that moment. Now, I know some of you are going, okay, tempted. Okay, he was tempted in terms of going into the cross. That's a big deal. But like in every way, like really in every way, I mean, Jesus didn't have a smartphone. You know, Jesus didn't have like porn coming towards him, just popping up on his screen. Tempted in every way. Goodwin is super helpful in terms of this. He, he, he says this in terms of temptation, that, that temptation can take the most graphic forms and the most basic forms. So that word tempted in every way is actually tempted in every form. In other words, Jesus experienced the most graphic temptation 
and also the most basic temptation in every form. Think of some of the graphic temptation that Jesus experienced when Satan says, bow down and worship me. How horrific. How absolutely horrific. Graphically tempted. Bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Tempted. He even took him to the top spire of the temple and said, throw yourself down. Test God and see if he will save you. Graphic temptation. But, but sometimes his temptation was really super basic. Turn these stones into bread. In other words, eat when you should be fasting. Not as graphic as bow down and worship me, but a basic temptation. Tempted to do his own will rather than God's will. Think about Jesus' temptation when he knew that Judas would betray him. I mean, you know the temptation you feel when someone has betrayed you to just retaliate, to cancel them, to gossip about them. Jesus overcomes that basic temptation and kisses him. Amazing. And Peter, Peter's denial of him. I'll cut you out. You're dead to me. But actually graciously reinstates him. Feed my sheep. Jesus was tempted in every graphic form and every basic form. We are not told how he was sexually tempted. But we know that he was able to minister with purity to women who were of ill repute. I want to ask you this, because you could say, okay, tempted in every form, that's great, but I mean, like the worst thing is actually when I have fallen into sin, and then like how, the shame you feel, I mean, Jesus can't sympathize with me in that because he never sinned. So like, oh man, it's a terrible thing after I have given in to temptation, and Jesus can't identify with me in this. C.S. Lewis is beautiful in this regard. He says, you know, someone who has experienced temptation but has resisted it through to the point where they win through has actually experienced that temptation more intensely than someone who gives into it. And that's Jesus. He, he has experienced temptation more intensely than any of us because he resisted to the point of winning through. I was saying to a couple before we started tonight that during COVID, uh, we moved our church into a tent for about six months just so that we could meet together. And uh, before we had a tent, we were out in the car park with these easy-ups. And when the Santa Ana winds blew through, you'd have these people who would come and stand next to these easy-ups trying to, trying to keep them, Right? And I use this as an example of resisting temptation. If you're trying to hold an easy up and, and it's blowing a gale, and after 10 minutes you just go, this is too hard, and you just sit down and the easy up blows away. 
Well, I mean, you've resisted temptation to a point, but you haven't fully resisted temptation. No, that person who is standing there the whole 45-minute sermon, they have experienced temptation or they've experienced resistance much more intensely than the person that sat down. We are like the person that sat down. Jesus is like the person that stood strong. And that's an amazing thing. We're coming to someone who has experienced temptation more intensely than any of us. So his sinlessness means he knows temptation better than us. And his sinlessness means he is holy and therefore he can help us out. This is the beautiful thing about Jesus, tempted yet without sin. You know when you're with someone who is sympathetic but sinful. Let's say I have a drinking problem. I mean, I'm tempted in this, so I'm going to find someone to help me, and I find someone else who's got a drinking problem. And they give in to temptation just like me, and we sit and we have a pity party together. And we're just like, oh, you struggle too. I also struggle. Let's struggle together. There's a kind of sympathy that's really unhelpful. You know those kinds of friends. Oh, man, let's just dive into the pit together. Have a pity party. Jesus is not that kind of friend. He is sympathetic, but he's not in the hole. And the beautiful thing is because he's not in the hole, he can get us out of the hole. Jesus is both sympathetic and holy, so he can lift us out of temptation. And that's a beautiful thing. So finally, there's an exhortation in view of these two beautiful things, that he's in heaven, but he's with us in sympathy, that he's tempted in every way, and yet without sin. What's the exhortation? The exhortation is in verse 16. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the exhortation in view of these two beautiful truths. In heaven, yet sympathetic, tempted, yet without sin. It means that <laughs> when we pray, we're not praying, we're not throwing up a couple of prayers to the big guy upstairs. We're not outsourcing our prayer to someone that's more holy that God hears. He has made a way for every single one of us to approach the throne of grace boldly. And you say, but Alan, that seems arrogant. Approach the throne of grace boldly? I mean, I'm weak, I'm tempted, I've got sin. I want to say, when we understand what a high priest is, how beautiful a high priest Jesus is, it's arrogant for us not to come boldly. He has made a way. He's lived a sinless life died a justifying death, and now is sitting at the throne of grace waiting for you to come. Why would you not boldly approach? Why would, you, why would you ever outsource it to the professionals? No, there's an invitation for each of us to come. And it's to come for two things. For mercy and for grace. 
Let us boldly approach the throne of grace for mercy and grace in our time of need. Mercy and grace sound like the same word, don't they? They, they actually are different in this context. Mercy is when we have fallen into temptation and have sinned. We come for mercy. We come not pleading innocent. We plead guilty and we plead for mercy. I've learned this with policemen and women in America. I'm not going to talk to you about the police force in South Africa, but they left a lot to be desired. In my first couple of years here, I got numerous traffic fines driving on the wrong side of the road. And very quickly I learned not to plead innocent, but just to plead guilty and plead for mercy. And that got me much further than saying, well, you know, I've just arrived here and you guys are on the wrong side of the road anyway. And where's that going to get you? No, you just plead guilty and you plead for mercy. And very often they'll take, oh, that accent. Where's that accent from? Yeah, I'm an immigrant. Have mercy. In similar but greater ways, when we come to the throne of grace, we don't come blaming others with our list of, well, this is why I did it. You just come, you plead for mercy, and you receive God's mercy. He's ready to give it. It's the throne of grace, for heaven's sake. But we must plead guilty. I said this on Saturday, sorry, on Sunday, and I think most of you weren't there. But um, I joined a softball league when I first came to America. Wanted to learn an American sport. And one of the things that fascinated me was when our team uh, did something bad, when someone struck out or threw wrong or dropped a catch, they would say, my bad. And I would say, my bad, what is that? What are you saying, my bad? And then the team would turn around and say, you're good. I would go, that is weird. They're not good. They're not good at all. They just dropped the catch. They've struck out. What's going on? So I go to the team captain and I say, what, what, what are they on about? Like, my bad. And you're good. And, and he says to me, well, when we say my bad, it's saying, that was my fault. I'm not blaming anyone else. I'm taking responsibility. I'm like, okay, my bad. That's great. But then why do they say you're good? Because he's not good. He's bad. Oh, no, no, no. They're not saying he's good. They're saying it's good. Like, you're forgiven. We're not going to hold it against you. I just said, dude, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. When we stop blaming others and pleading innocence, we just say, my bad. That's repentance. My bad. Even if there were other people involved, Lord, I need mercy. And when we say, my bad, God says, you're good. And when he says, you're good, he's not saying, you're good. He's actually saying, you're bad. But he's saying, because you're pleading for mercy, you are hiding yourself in the perfect goodness of my son, Jesus. And you're good. You're righteous. That's the gospel. We storm the throne of grace, saying, my bad, and receiving God's, you're good. He sets our conscience at ease. This beautiful high priest doesn't judge us. Not a throne of judgment, it's a throne of grace. Sets our hearts at ease. 
But then finally, there's the second thing that we come to, to find mercy and grace in time of need. We come for mercy when we have fallen into temptation and need forgiveness. My bad. This word grace is different from mercy. Grace is actually the power to resist temptation. Uh, Titus 2 uses the same word grace. It says, The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching them to say no to ungodliness and yes to a righteous life. Isn't that beautiful? So there are times when we just, oh man, I, f- I fell into temptation. I asked for that croissant. I walked into that sex shop. I retaliated. You know, I looked at porn. I cheated on my tax. Lord, I, I, my bad. Please forgive me. That's mercy. Grace is different. Grace is coming and saying, God, I am in the crucible of temptation. I'm feeling pulled across this line. I know it's not going to be worth it. Please, before I do something I regret, please give me grace to say no to ungodliness and yes to a righteous life. That is available for us at the throne of grace. And you know why that's beautiful? It means that Jesus, our great high priest, can forgive us when we do sin, but he's also powerful enough to break us out of cycles of just sin, I'm sorry, sin, I'm sorry, sin, I'm sorry. He's actually saying, you know what? When you put your faith in me, you got forgiveness, but you also got my temptation-resisting power, and I'm going to lend it to you at the throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful? So we don't have to sin. Do we sin? Yes, we do. But we're not bound to sin because we can come for grace. So come for grace. Come for grace. Let's pray. Before the throne of God above, I have a great and perfect plea great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his heart. My name is graven on his hands. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me there depart. Jesus, our great high priest, thank you that you ever live and plead for us. We thank you for your work on the cross on earth, but we thank you for your work in heaven right now. And every single one of us just want to avail ourselves of your mercy and grace in time of need. We come to you, Lord, we come to you when we have fallen into temptation. And we ask for mercy. We ask for your cleansing and your forgiveness. We say, Lord, my bad. We need your righteousness. Thank you so much that we can receive that. We receive it. I just want to ask you, just receive God's mercy right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We want to approach your throne of grace. Not just for mercy, though. 
but for sin-resisting power. Thank you, Jesus, that you overcame temptation. And so we want to bring you our, our weaknesses, our, our limps, our, our kryptonite, Lord, those things that just seem to trip us up again and again and again. Lord, sometimes they are most graphic temptations. Other times they are so basic. And I just want to ask that each one of you would, would reach out by faith and receive his grace. Thank you that we are not bound to sin. Thank you that your sin-resisting power is available to us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.